Hello and welcome to the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. Today's guest is Kevin Bailey, who is a visual effects supervisor and director. Kevin's VFX career started at age 18 in now what is legendary fashion when his high school project caught the attention of Star Wars producer Rick McCallum, who invited Kevin to join George Lucas and the VFX team working on Star Wars Episode One. Uh, For many people, it would all be downhill from there, but for Kevin, no. In the following 25 years, he has blazed a bright path with credits including the Pirates of the Caribbean and Harry Potter (laughs) franchises. And over that time, Kevin developed a long-term working relationship with director Robert Zemeckis, leading the visual effects on films such as The Walk, Allied and Flight, which garnered awards and critical acclaim. In 2018, having grown to over 300 employees in two countries, the business Kevin co-founded, Atomic Fiction, was acquired by Deluxe Entertainment. In more recent years, Kevin has been heavily exploring real-time and virtual production techniques. And in this wide-ranging talk, we hear about his latest collaboration with Bob Zemeckis, Pinocchio, and how Kevin sees virtual production developing, the limitations we still need to overcome, and why, quotes, process is the sexiest thing. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Epic Games and Unreal Engine. It's part of the Virtual Production Revolution series, which you can check out now on the home of Future of Film, futureoffilm.live. Here you'll see all of the other episodes and videos where we also include extra clips and added materials. And I really would recommend checking out this episode in particular because you'll get to see Kevin's high school projects amongst other things, which if you imagine he did this in his bedroom in 1998, 99, is, well, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. If you want to discover more about the future of film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the podcast, explore our other resources like Future of Film Summit, Future of Film Report, and series like Virtual Production Revolution and Rebels of Storytelling. You can also sign up for updates and get in touch. We have some very exciting plans in store for 2022. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and now please enjoy this conversation with Kevin Bailey. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm really excited to be talking to you today about your work, your career, about virtual production, of course. Um, but I, I wanted to start by asking you about how you did end up working in the virtual effects technology space in film and visual storytelling. 
Yeah, you know, I, uh, I I kind of grew up like a lot of people that are in this industry, just loving effectsy movies, and that was just sort of like the the common thread between all the films that I loved, and that that really clicked with me when I saw Jurassic Park, and uh, <coughs> I, you know, I just saw that movie maybe ten times in theaters, and just really wanted to learn how to make dinosaurs. There's just something about making, uh, you know, making visuals that you you couldn't make any other way um, using technology to do it. So uh, I was going to a public high school in Seattle um, and the, the one of the teachers there, he was a, a AutoCAD teacher. He also had a couple copies of 3D Studio release two for DOS. And he said, well, you can't, make, you can't make dinosaurs with AutoCAD, but I got this 3D Studio program. I have no idea how to use it. Here's the manuals and a few parallel dongles, like go knock yourselves out. And so a buddy of mine and I, we just stayed at school making videos first for, you know, high school classes and then for high school assemblies. And then we got a little job with a local company and that led us to have a job with a big local company, which was Microsoft. Um, And that kind of relationship between us and Microsoft and how the school had fostered that um, ended up landing us uh, a spot in a documentary that just happened to be funded by George Lucas's nonprofit educational foundation and George and his producer, Rick McCallum saw us in the editing room of that documentary. This was in 96, 1995, 1996. And, you know, I get this call from Rick as a voicemail saying like, Hey, you know, um, my name's Rick McCallum. I'm producing this little movie you may have heard of called star Wars episode one. Um, do you want to come down and visit Skywalker ranch? Um, and that answer was had very quickly. Um, so, you know, we got a tour of the ranch. We got a tour of the art department. Saw the first part that, you know, previs was really, really new back then. Um, and, you know, even today, like, you know, previs is a really uh, sort of important part of the virtual production process, right? That it, it had really rarely or never been done on films <clears throat> before Star Wars Episode One. that was sort of a leader in that. And we got to see some of the first previs on episode one, which is the pod race. And, um, but they couldn't hire us at that point because we were juniors in high school. We still had one more year to go. So we made it our life's mission to prove to them that they had to hire us after we graduated high school. And so we made a video that was really similar to what we'd seen in the pod race, but not so similar as to get us, um, sued. And, um, and, you know, it was a mix of live action and, and CG and, you know, pretty fun. I mean, you know, by these days standards is crude, but um, it was entertaining and, and it was entertaining enough where they said, eventually, um, stop bugging us with all this work in progress that you're sending us. Um, you're hired and, you know, show up for work, you know, two days after you graduate high school. So move down to California, join the previs team on Star Wars Episode One, and uh, the, the rest is kind of history. Wow, um, it's a great story, and what a what a place to to cut your teeth. Yeah, it was in, pretty uh, surreal. In, I mean, incredible, like a, a fairy tale. But you would, I mean, this is fascinating. But you you basically self taught, and that was mm. before before YouTube, right? Before there were like yeah. you know all these videos on YouTube you could you could you, you could use to learn. How did yeah. you how did you actually learn those skills? You know, I, it was, uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. I, I, I think, um, 
the way that we learn those skills is kind of the same thing that I see in common with a lot of the really extremely talented people um, that we see coming out of, um, you know, either hobbyists or, or colleges today, which is that we weren't learning the 3D software um, to get a job. We were learning it because we wanted to accomplish a thing, right? We wanted to create this visual or that visual and just really got a lot of energy off of the notion that we could make something out of nothing, right? And so for me, diving in and learning, you know, uh, learning Premiere and 3D Studio, and then later it was Electric Image and FormZ and After Effects, and you know that the software just kind of keeps evolving. But the common thread is just like why I'm using the software, like what is my motivation, and always having that motivation to kind of guide me, even when it's like I'm confused about what button to press eventually the answer becomes clear, right? If I know why I'm, what, what my end result is, right? So that, that I think is the thing that allowed me to self-teach. Um, and our, our, our little demo project from back in high school that, that got us a job on Star Wars episode one, it's actually, you know, again, it's, it's crude, but it's also still, it holds up against some of the stuff that I see coming out of colleges now, right? And I think that the difference between us then and the, you know, the sort of the cream of the crop now is huge, right? They're so much better, but us then and everybody else, it's like, it, it's not really that much of a difference because even though technology is advanced, if people are using it for reasons that aren't like really driven by the visual, driven by the result, it's just you know, no amount of technology can like bring that out of somebody. Right. So, so that's why I always tell people that are wanting to get into this industry is it's like, look, it's a nutty industry, a, <laughs> but then also like, I think you need that sort of creative drive and this stubborn vision of creativity in order to like really uh, succeed and be able to overcome challenges, AKA self-teach um, when the going gets tough. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Having that vision and vision of the storytelling, I guess. And the, you, the, yeah, having that in mind to guide you through the yeah, use like of the, the tools. The, there's, there's plenty of times where things like get really tough in movie making. I mean, it can be extremely chaotic. Um, it's the only business that I am aware of where there's sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars at stake and, uh, and people are kind of winging it sometimes. Um, and so that can get really stressful. You know, for me, I started a visual effects company, you know, I'm kind of fast forwarding and, and number of years and ran that for, you know, eight or nine years. And that was, there were just moments of extreme stress. Um, like all this, you know, gray hair is, is from that. Um, and anytime I had to ask myself, like, why am I putting myself through this? There always had to be an answer right? That was kind of like a real, like soulful core default. And, and there was there and there still is. Um, and if I didn't have that, I would be in another industry now. Yeah. That's, that's probably easier places to, to, to make a living, um, for sure. (laughs) So I'm definitely drawn to, to geeking out a little bit about Star Wars and, and, and talking, talking a bit about that, but I want to stay, on on topic i mean what from your experience at 
at uh, the ranch, as they as, as they call it, um, working with George and the team on episode one. What were your kind of your key, I suppose, takeaways from that experience? You know, I, um, I mean, I got to work directly with George a few times a week, um, in the cutting room. Our previous team was like six, six people at its smallest and like 10 at its biggest or something. So it was a very small team. <clears throat> so we were working directly with George and the editors, Martin Smith and Ben Burt. And, you know, we, because I hadn't gone to film school, I had really no, I didn't know what screen direction was. I didn't know, you know, any of this stuff, but effectively what I was doing is, is through previs, you know, they would take these, oftentimes it was like reels of like World War II footage, right? Um, or Vietnam footage or whatever, you know, playing dogfights and stuff, and they would cut it together and then say, we want something like this, but like in space. And then we would have to extrapolate and figure out how to plus it up. Um, and we would just make mistakes. And then the editors would be like, no, 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 we screen directions left to right in the scene. And you're, you, you cross the line here and this, that, and the other. And, and slowly, but surely we would sort of like, it was a sort of a, a, a film school, like on steroids. Right. Um, and that, you know, that exposure to like the core of the filmmaking process was completely invaluable. And we, you know, at the time we didn't really realize how valuable it was and how unique it was. Um, we kept chasing at that time, <clears throat> um, you know, like, oh, we're doing this, these animatics that kind of look like crude video games, right? But they were the blueprint for the final shot. ILM followed what we did oftentimes uh, closer than they would have liked to, um, you know, but Bob really, or, um, uh, George Lucas really saw it as as sort of the, the roadmap. Um, but so we were kind of like part of the filmmaking team, but we also were like so jealous of the people at ILM that they got to make the final pixels that they're, when their family went to see the movie, they're the final pixels, right? There's, there's the dinosaur in Jurassic Park, you know, there's the spaceship in, in um, Star Wars episode one. So we found ourselves constantly chasing us like, how can we get closer to making the final pixels? And we, you know, we actually got for, fortunate enough to, you know, we finished previs and then they had us do a bunch of lightsabers and lasers and we had to figure out how to make a lightsaber in After Effects, right? Back in, you know, 1999. And so we, we kind of did all that stuff and we got to make final pixels on the screen and, and fell in love with it. Um, and, but now, you know, you fast forward, you know, 10 years later and I started looking back on those days going like, I miss being part of the filmmaking process. Like, you know, the, the final pixels is great from an execution perspective, but like I was, I was making movies back then. And how can we kind of get closer to that? How can we get closer back to that? And that's, that's one of the things that it started to really draw me towards um, virtual production. Yeah. Tell me about when you were first exposed to virtual production. Well, in fact, maybe start with how, how what, how do you, define virtual production because people have different definitions of it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there are lots of definitions of virtual production. Vir virtual production to me <clears throat> is really anything that um, brings parts of the filmmaking process that are traditionally outside the purview of visual effects um, into the digital process in a way that is extremely 
um, interactive, right? So basically using kind of visual effects tools and processes to help with things that are traditionally physical, like production design, the art department, um, costume even, um, certainly lighting and camera. Um, those things for many, many years were either extremely slow and it was sort of, you know, visual effects had kind of been this like, you know, process where there was hundreds of people on the other side of a black curtain that you just sort of like fed footage into. And maybe you got to talk to one or two people, you know, that were sort of like, you know, the people who would like yelled at the other side of the curtain, darker, bluer, right? You know, and then two weeks later, the director would see the result of, of their direction. Whereas virtual production um, is really starting to, is, is basically the process of like expo drawing back that curtain and exposing the traditional filmmaking departments to the virtual tools to help improve their process, right? So it's not just like LED walls um, or um, simulcam. It really extends much earlier than that, right? It's like, how do we work with the art department to make sure that their designs are going to suit the filmmaker's vision in the context of how they want to block the scene with their actors and their cameras, right? It's like a lot in, you know, traditional days, you didn't really find out that stuff. I mean, you could use like, you know, little cardboard figures walking around in a foam course set, but that's about as far as you could get. With virtual production, we can like put, you know, mo we can put actors in a fully virtual set with a virtual camera, even if it's a set we're gonna build, you know, months before they ever hammer a nail on that physical set. So um, yeah, and I think, I think that the ultimate result of virtual production is that the director, the, the, the desired outcome is for the director to get that much closer to actually being able to touch the final pixel on the movie. That, that's the purpose of it. And like <coughs> uh, Robert Zemeckis, who I have worked with for in the last 15 years, his way of saying the same thing is he's like, yeah, virtual production is kind of like a printer that just prints what's in my brain, right? <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's like a, uh, you know, it helps to be that direct connection between what's in his head and and he can actually physically manipulate cameras and lights and things in ways that, you know, he would have to have relied on a game of telephone of, you know, 10 people to do before he can just do it himself. Um, so yeah, tell me, powerful. tell me about when you first experienced that or, or, or was it a particular moment or project or, or does it feel like more of a continuation in some ways than the, the work you were doing in previs early on? I've, I've kind of found that almost everything in the world of visual effects, and this is certainly true for virtual production, is a, an evolution of something else that happened before, right? Um, and, you know, we kind of try, um, try something, you know, just like in, in evolution in nature, the bad ideas, you know, they, they, they might get you somewhere, but, you know, it's like, we'd never want to do that again. Right. And they just sort of fail and go by the wayside and the good ideas are the ones that stick. And then, you know, you iterate and iterate and iterate. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's like, you know, back in 90, 1997, working with, uh, uh, you know, the previs <laughs> team on episode one, this is like, 
hey, we can establish a lot of what needs to go on with previs, but that was kind of like a dead end, right? That was like, it ended up in a bunch of fancy video footage um, and that was it. Um, but then, you know, as, as time went on, you know, especially on, on Zemeckis' movies, because he's very open-minded to sort of using new technology, is, you know, on, on The Walk, we, we, uh, we shot that in like 2014, and it was one of the first uses on film of Simulcam, where you would look through the lens of the camera and see a giant green screen void of like, you know, a wire walker on a wire in one monitor. And then on the other monitor, it was like a cityscape and a horizon in the background that would move in tandem with the camera. And, um, and that hadn't been used at that scale before, but it was an incredibly helpful tool on that project. And then we did a movie called Allied, where we had a bunch of car driving work and we needed to look like we were driving through, you know, Moroccan cities, but we had to shoot it in London. So we built one of the first sort of automotive like LED walls um, that didn't give us in-camera comps, but it gave us all the light and reflection on the you know, these period, World War II period chrome cars or, or chrome um, accented cars. Um, and then, you know, we, uh, we had, um, you know, uh, uh, uses on Welcome to Marwin for, you know, having motion capture real time with simulcam and doing pre-lights on all of our sets because we were actually using live action footage of the actors' faces to paste onto these dolls to make them, you know, because to make them look not creepy. And, um, and that required, you know, a heavy involvement from the DP and the production designer, right? And so, you know, now we're working on um, Disney's Pinocchio and, um, you know, we're using every one of those technologies, you know, bundled together, right? And so it's sort of like every movie has had a reason to use and advance parts of the virtual production tool set, but it's always been like just the thing that's right for that movie. It's not like, hey, let's go full virtual production just because it's fun, it's like, no, 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 this stuff is too hard and too expensive just to do it because it's fun or because it was the trendy thing. It's like, why are we using it? What are we using it for? What's the intended outcome? How does the filmmaker like to work? And then we decide what bits to use. And it just so happens that, you know, um, a movie like the one I'm working on right now is like, is, is a great, uh, had great use cases for a lot of it. But you know, they, we combine it all and we learn things about each individual one in the next movie. We may just use like a couple bits of the virtual production toolkit, um, but they'll be even further refined, right? Um, so yeah, it's like, it's definitely been an evolution and kind of driven by what makes sense um, more than the technology itself, I guess. Yeah, that, that does make complete sense. Um, a series of interrelated tools, which can be, you know, used together for particular use cases. Um, yeah. Your first movie with Robert Zemeckis, am I right in saying that was A Christmas Carol? Yeah, that was A Christmas Carol. Um, did like a teeny bit of work on Beowulf as we were getting started up. But yeah, A Christmas Carol was <clears throat> the first film that we worked together um, and, you know, that kind of was born out of, uh, so he, Bob Zemeckis had worked a lot with Doug Chang um, uh, as his sort of, uh, you know, production designer, art department, like, you know, his concept team. And 
Doug happened to also have run the art department on Star Wars Episode One, And so I'd been, you know, we were all on the third floor of the main house on Skywalker Ranch. And we were, you know, these little energetic punks running around, you know, just like jaw on the floor with all the the art that they were making and really took their inspiration and and put it, you know, into these animatics. So when Bob Zemeckis came to Doug and said, hey, Disney wants me to start up this big motion capture uh, company to do a Christmas Carol and movies beyond, um, can you help me head it up? And Doug said, sure, like I can, I can build a team. Um, and so he called myself and, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people that he'd worked with before and said, do you want to do this? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was, I was at the com- at a company called the orphanage at the time and looking for sort of my next thing. And, uh, it was like the opportunity to work with the guy who did back to the future and who framed Roger Rabbit and, you know, Forrest Gump is like, I'm in, right. It was, uh, it was, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Does the 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 work on Christmas Carol was was that in any way are there continuations of that in terms of virtual production or was that a, a different kind of workflow? Yeah, it, you know, it was a that was a workflow that um, it was certainly a continuation of some of the some of the work that we had done, um, you know, as individuals <coughs> coming in, like all the leadership at that company kind of brought their own ideas and their own experience to the table. Um, Bob also had, um, uh, you know, he had a process that he kind of started to really gel with um, from, you know, Polar Express through Beowulf. And, and, um, and so, you know, it was sort of like, all right, how can we take the best of everything that we know and facilitate the workflow that Bob wants, which is mocap and then, do the cameras later and then refine into animation, um, being as faithful to the performances of the actors as we possibly can. So we, we invented a lot of new tech um, and A Christmas Carol was a pretty painful show uh, because we were building a studio from the ground up while making a movie using a bunch of new technologies and processes. Um, and at the time we were still using, you know, we were using Motion, motion Builder um, to do all the real time work. Um, and, uh, you know, camera layout, things like that. Um, our DP, Robert Presley, was, you know, heavily involved in, you know, sort of, uh, he had a set of, you know, airy wheels that were fed into the, uh, uh, <coughs> that were fed into the computers so that he could, animators would animate cameras and then he would do a wheels pass on them to get them a little life. Um, so it was, you know, we were using virtual production there, um, you know, but again, it was sort of like the right parts for the right, you know, the right moments. Um, and a lot of the technology of these giant LED walls and stuff like that wasn't necessary because it was, it was a, it was a motion capture thing. Yeah. makes sense. Um, very, it sounds very stressful. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it was, it was pretty stressful. Um, but we had a great, a great team to do it. Um, so, and you know, if, if there's, if there's nothing else that I got out of that experience, um, and we did make a movie that a lot of people watch and love, which is always amazing. Um, 
it's it's like the the people that I met at that place because you know it was like at its peak it was like 700 people or something and now today I still work with a bunch of them you know my producer Sandra Scott I work with back there and our virtual production supervisor on on Pinocchio John Root um, I worked with him there he was part of the mocap team and so you know it's just sort of like yeah meeting meeting great people I mean it's sort of one of the the sort of un un uh, um, underappreciated uh, parts of filmmaking as insane as things are um, the insanity kind of helps bring out bonds in people. And, uh, and those, those are relationships that like, I, I definitely uh, value it probably even more than the work that we do sometimes. Let's talk, talk a little bit about real time technology and um, we haven't, we haven't, touched on that yet and uh, when did that sort of start entering your sort of field of work and influence and how central is that really now in terms of where these tools and workflows are going has slowly come into the picture i mean obviously on a christmas carol we we're using motion builder to help set cameras and and sort of visualize where our motion capture actors were going to end up in the virtual sets. Um, but, you know, it was a very heavily, heavily like physically based process um, <clears throat> and obviously didn't look very good. Is that, sorry, even, sorry, Kevin, is that, I don't, I'm not familiar with Motion Builder. Is, is that a, an engine oh, yeah. or? Yeah. So Motion Builder is an application that um, at the time, um, think I, at one, at one point Autodesk bought it, <laughs> I think they still own it, but it's like, you know, it was a, it was a animation program that, um, just was really well equipped to have like motion capture data streamed into it. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, you can manipulate it from there and it still, still is great for that from a flexibility perspective. Um, but, it, you know, so it renders in real time, but in the way that like Maya's viewport renders in real time, it doesn't look much better than that. Um, certainly not like the modern uh, <clears throat> Maya viewport. So, you you know, we were running without shadows and lighting and this, that, and the other. It looked pretty rudimentary, but it was enough to kind of get the gist of it. Um, and, you know, this the same was kind of true on the walk when we were doing, um, you know, uh, this sort of real-time simulcam where, you know, when we move the camera, plus or minus, you know, I mean, most of the camera moves on that mo movie were quite slow, so we could deal with some lag. And I think at the time it was like, you know, 12 or 13 frames between when you move the camera and when you saw this sort of real-time render <coughs> of, you know, our set with, you know, 1970s New York behind it move. Um, but it was a really helpful compositional tool. And again, it didn't really look that great, but it was extremely helpful. and then we did Allied, um, where we had all this car driving stuff that we needed to use these giant LED walls for. It was like a hundred foot long kind of U-shaped LED wall that was eight feet high surrounding the actors and the cars. And that was a mix of, of sort of uh, pre-rendered CG footage and 360 degree kind of stitched video that we'd filmed off of hood mounts on a car. And we were using um, a program called Touch Designer to kind of like drive that footage and you could put up a you know blue square and in, in the freshman where the, the, the camera was seeing um, to make kind of a virtual blue screen uh, behind the actors. And 
and, you know, run footage slower, faster, this, that, and the other. But so even though that was sort of more video footage based, the thing I actually started to notice is like, you know, Brad Pitt came up to me and was just like, dude, that's awesome. Like, you know, when I'm driving, like I can see when the corner's coming and steer at the right time. And I can look through the corner in a way that like is really hard to act, but like all this footage makes it easy. Right. And I love it. And so the interesting thing was, is just to see that even though that stuff wasn't like inherently, you know, 3d in its malleable sense, because it looked real, people started to engage with it, right? They started to engage with it in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And then <clears throat> leaping forward to Welcome to Marwin, because, you know, we, we had this, this need to film our actors so that we could use their faces. The lighting had to really be established in the, what, what the final scene was going to be lit like. Like, you know, there, the, <clears throat> this movie, you know, required us to like put, you know, a, a, a bunch of actors, um, uh, their faces onto these virtual dolls in a virtual environment of like an overscale uh, kind of Belgian World War II town that this, this, the, the hero character of the film builds in his backyard. And so it's like, everything is out of scale. Uh, we didn't want to do it, honey, I shrunk the kids style. We knew that the worlds have to be fully virtual, but in order for any of it to work, because we're kind of locked into the footage of the faces of our actors, we had to know what the lighting design of every set was gonna be before we went and filmed it. Because if we lit an actor from the left and then they really should have been lit from the right, and then you know, just the footage would have been unusable, right? And so that was my first experience diving into Unreal. And um, we gave our DP, C. Kim Miles, um, we gave him some tools to help him adjust sun angle and, and height and things. And that was the first time that in a real time 3D setting, I'd seen things actually starting to look like realistic enough where you see the DP start to engage, you see the director start to really engage. Um, it's not just a tool um, that helps to kind of give information, but now I'm actually, I'm kind of making a real thing here. Right. And, you know, <clears throat> fast forward to like, you know, the movie I'm working on right now and unreal, um, you know, with four, two, six, and, you know, assuming you got an RTX card, like all the, the real-time ray tracing stuff and the GI. And it's like, all of a sudden you're looking at something going like, I can really see the final movie in what I'm doing right now, right? Even though the animation is gonna be better and the, you know, everything is gonna be slightly better. It's like, you can squint your eyes and go like, that's a movie. And in doing that, um, the real time has kind of evolved to the point where like people that didn't really, you know, looking at a very basic image and making the mental leap to what that's gonna look like because they don't, have exposure to the process prior and they don't have, they don't know what it is like to have a wireframe that comes out looking like something, that mental leap of like, oh, this is going to look like this. Like they just don't have that experience. I, I, I kind of didn't really understand it at the time, but it's like there was a reticence there to dive into it. And I think it's just intimidating, right? Where it's like, like I'm, I'm pushing a button here, but I don't know what's going to happen on the other side. And I get that now. Like I get that that was intimidating. Whereas now 
with the state of, you know, <clears throat> tech, um, especially the stuff that I'm seeing from the Unreal team, there is no mental leap between what they see and what they're going to get. It's just like, it's, it's just so good that the quality of the image is not, it's not about being good just to look snazzy. It's about being good to engage that part of your brain that, you know, wants to iterate, wants to be creative, wants to have every input that you give have an instant result that then you can make a decision based off of. And that's what the real-time tech um, is giving us now. So it's evolved dramatically, not just in how good it looks or how fast it moves, but how it's able to engage um, filmmakers that have decades worth of experience to give to the process, like enabling them to actually contribute at the highest level in the digital process. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. Um, so do you, do you see then, let's talk a little bit more about that process and how you see that changing or how you see that sort of evolving. Um, does this, does this mean, Kevin, that we have to, uh, it's a case of deciding everything up front? Because that's the other side of this, is it? Because everyone's, you know, collab- collaborating at an early stage. Uh, Bob Zemeckis is able to print his ideas um, and everyone can sort of interact with that and, and contribute as well. But does that, what are we, what are we, you know, does that mean everything has to be set up front? Um, or is it, is it more flexible? You know, it depends, right? Um, I think, and I think one of the exciting things about virtual production right now is that everybody's still figuring out how to use it, right? Or how do you, and by it, I just mean sort of the grab bag of tools that virtual production provides. Um, it is you know, I, I kind of feel like where, worth, let me see, how do I put this? <laughs> like the trends, the things that are getting people excited about how to use it, um, you know, these LED walls and things like that, I think are, they're, they're great inspiration right? They're a great inspiration for people to sort of like want to investigate the technology. Um, I think that the, the, we have a lot of growth in terms of people, the soft side of things. Um, and I'm kind of dancing around this answer because it's like, I, I don't want any of this to sound like a dig, but it's like, it's all so new that there are very few people in the world that know how to put together the right mix of tools and technology and have production experience, right? Because surviving on a movie set, and there's a word, there's a reason why I use the word surviving because it, it is like, usually it is a case of like, either you're going to make it or you're not, right? Um, and, and it's such a fast paced environment. There's a particular language that's spoken on set. Um, there's a protocol and etiquette that has its roots in hundreds of um, sort of man years of history in any one department. I mean, there's, you know, movie making has been around for over a hundred years now. So it's like, there's a lot of stuff that's been established that we 
as a virtual production team oftentimes come from a games background or a visual effects background or but as any visual effects artist who has spent the first 15 years of their 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 careers like in a studio can attest to that then end up on a set um it's extremely intimidating right so now what we're doing is we're bringing this tool set to the process that is incredibly liberating but if you're not speaking the same language as the rest of the filmmaking team, you're gonna have a hard time, right? Um, breaking through. So I think a lot of the growth that we kind of have to do now in the virtual production world is, is um, sort of an education of like, all right, we, we're kind of like at a pretty good place with a lot of the tech, how, can we help integrate that? What are the right times to integrate that tech into the production process? And how do we not just visually relate with all the other departments that can use this stuff, but how do we, from a communication perspective, how do we uh, get the information out of them that they need to give us to help us give them what they need, right? And that, <coughs> that is uh, it's a lot easier said than done. And there's a lot of, especially with as in demand as virtual production is right now, there's a lot of, um, you know, people doing this for the first time out there and learning trial by fire. Um, and I've been there, it's hard. Um, but <laughs> to anybody who's listening that is, uh, that's in that boat, keep it up. You know, there's people are people on the, the physical production side, they can be hard asses. Um, you know, there's, there's a way that they've been doing things for a long time. A lot of people don't like, to have that way being changed or upset by in, in any way. But when we do break through, it's pretty epic. Like it really uh, changes things for the better. So it's, it's a, it's a worthy struggle, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds good. Where, where do you, um, when you're speaking to filmmakers, storytellers, people in, in in the creative process what are you um what, what do you find people sort of uh, the the main challenges or hurdles people need to get over or not need to get over but are confronted with when dealing with with some of these tools um you know <laughs> You know, I think that, well, so there are all the, I mean, there are all the creative challenges that are the usual things in production, right? Where it's like, you know, how's this set going to look like? It's one thing looking at a blueprint, but what's it going to look like when, you know, I'm in a real world and some, you know, sometimes you can give a director, you can build it in a virtual production process. You can give the director, um, a camera, a virtual camera, and they can scout it using real lenses and a virtual camera. Sometimes you can put a VR headset on them and they'll respond to that. Um, sometimes, um, you know, going back to what I was just talking about with like, how do we facilitate this process, you know, with, with the live action teams um, in a success, <clears throat> successful way, you know, sometimes it's, it's a matter of, <clears throat> you know, if there's a production designer that, um, you know, has an idea that, and they want to pitch it to a director, you know, it's, it's a great way to do that. Right. Um, so, so I think it's just, it, it's, it's a great way to sort of overcome 
those kinds of sort of traditional challenges that uh, like even in the physical process, there's a lot of times there's sort of like a translation barrier between one department and the director, right? Um, that said, it kind of brings up a good point that this is that one of the logistical barriers to the success of virtual production is oftentimes <clears throat> when there's a particular department on a film that is sort of like, kind of like everybody's has to buy in, right? And if there's a particular department on the film that maybe we're not asking them the right questions, maybe we're not providing them the right tools, maybe they're just like, you know, this is their last movie that they're doing and they just want to do it how they've always been doing it, right? Um, <clears throat> but if there's one department that we can't quite break through to, you know, you'll end up with <clears throat> a situation where there's a set design that everybody worked really hard to like build virtually and the director scouts it uh, with a virtual camera and makes some notes. And then, and then all of a sudden you end up on set and you're doing your virtual set extensions, right? In the blue screen, you've only built a partial set and you're doing your set extensions, but unbeknownst to you, the art department has gone and changed a bunch of the design and not fed it back into virtual production because they were like, you know, oh, this, we got the information we need out of this and not fully understanding the whole process. Now you're on set and your set extension doesn't line up with the real set because that change never came back to you, right? And so there are, <clears throat> there are I think, scenarios in which even in the instances where it's useful, it can actually turn sour pretty quick um, unless, you know, everybody kind of like really buys into it and the virtual production team is doing a good job of sort of uh, educating the physical departments on, on um, and, and hearing them and providing them with the tools they need too. So it's not, you know, it's like it, it, it's not just about fulfilling the creative needs. It's sort of like an end to end challenge, right? It's like it could fill, fulfill a creative need but then be just as harmful or maybe useless down the line um, if it's not holistically sort of like working within the jive of the, you know, within the, the flow of the production, right? Um, and I think that's like one of the really big challenges with virtual production. Um, it's not just us nerds that need to be educated. Um, it's, uh, and I use the term nerds extremely lovingly, um, but it's also like everyone else, right? Um, <clears throat> that is sort of, ultimately the beneficiaries of the process yeah uh and and is that is that being driven like mediation in a way is that being driven by the virtual production team is that is that the their role because they need to be quite empowered don't they in order to to make that change and have that sort of yeah it's a it's a tough thing um I mean, ultimately, everything comes down to the director, right? And whether the director is embracing it, you know, the director and the producers, because <clears throat> there are definitely times where, you know, a virtual production process, like, let's say you're the classic example is, is simulcam, right? Where it's like, you want to see a set extension through the lens of your physical camera um, and or a virtual character through the lens of your physical camera. Oftentimes, it, you know, I mean, it, it, it requires, regardless of what technology you're using, it requires putting a bunch of extra GAC on the camera, right? You have to put, you know, a tracking device of some sort, whether it's markers or a beacon, you have to put, you know, usually it's like, you know, extra, like a, extra time code box. You got to put a locket box on there and you got to do this, that, and the other. And there's more cables in the loom and the, you know, so it's just more shit, right? <laughs> and, um, and 
the camera team is is oftentimes under the gun because the D, you know the DP um, will be like, oh, now we need to go and we you know we need to to undersling this camera and mount it upside down because we need to get really close to the ground. Well, now you need to take all that gack off, put it all back on, and be ready with the camera to roll by the time the director's done with his rehearsal. Well, all of our virtual production stuff that's on the camera um, makes it that take more time, right? And so you'll end up with instances where the virtual production process, it does introduce inconveniences and slowdowns in the process. And so we have to constantly work to like make those faster, but, and the payoff is there for the director, but it, it's not there for the first AC, right? The payoff isn't there for the first AC. They get nothing out of it, right? And um, most of the time, <laughs> sometimes it'll, you know, they, it'll, it'll help with like where to pull focus to and stuff, but most of the time it brings nothing to them. So, so that's why it's sort of, it's got to come from the director and the producers where it's like when these slowdowns are happening, that they're there supporting the process and saying like, Hey, I know this, like, this is adding one more thing for you, but it's really worth it for me. Right. Um, and it's worth it for the filmmaking process. And, um, yeah, so it's got to come from, it's got to come from up top. Um, and, you know, slowly but surely, we, you know, we'll, we'll make the inconveniences less inconvenient for people and the tech will evolve to the point where it's, you know, hopefully quite transparent. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not there, it's not there yet. So, you know, we as a, a sort of a visual effects team that's sort of driving the technology, we just have to be on top of figuring out, you know, how to reduce the impact um, and how to make contingency plans for when it doesn't work, right? Um, there are times where, um, you know, the the engine will crash, right? And so, uh, and then you have blank LED walls, right? That And if the DP is using the LED walls to light his set, um, you got a problem, <clears throat> right? And so, um, you know, but I've seen teams do brilliant things. It's like, well, I'm going to take what I'm going to output to the LED wall and I'm going to, you know, record it right to an offline recorder so that if the engine crashes, then I can just flip to the recording and the playback. So the LED wall doesn't go black. It's not interactive anymore, but it's not black. Right. So, you know, I, I think that, that finding the shortcomings and limitations of the virtual production tools and making failure, um, less noticeable on set is is one of the things that actually makes a, the difference between a really good virtual production team and one that kind of draws the ire of you know uh traditional filmmakers yeah so kevin where do you see all of this going um to to, to sort of conclude where where do you see the future of virtual production and are you, is this now satisfying, I guess, going back to your early experience, is this satisfying your, your, your desire, your, your urge to be more involved, more hands-on in, in the storytelling, the filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I see virtual production going in a direction where it will become more transparent, um, where people won't notice the the sort of the um the sort of the inconveniences of the requirements to do it as much <laughs> i think studios will get more and more used to and see the value in 
doing more upfront, right? Um, where, you know, we have to design our sets and we have to, um, you know, uh, we have to really kind of think about things that normally we would have been able to kick down the, the road into post earlier. Um, and uh, not only that, but we have to pay for them to happen earlier, right? So from a cash flow perspective, it's like things that a studio is used to being able to wait um, for, you know, until post-production to say, okay, now we're going to commit to spending the money on this environment because we know that it's in the movie because we've seen a rough cut of the movie. Now they have to commit to that, you know, at least a portion of that spend before when all they have is a script, right? And so there's some mindset shifts that are happening um, and <clears throat> most studios, I'm seeing them really, um, you know, buy into that, uh, you know, Disney's a great example working with them right now. It's like Dave Terratero <clears throat> is, uh, our visual effects executive on the show has been so supportive of, of that. Um, and we've learned a lot from it. And <clears throat> it, what it, what it means is that, you know, the first time that the studio actually sees the movie, it's really flushed out. Right. So it's not a kind of a mental leap it actually looks like a movie, right? Um, because we've done so much work up front and the virtual production has informed the actual shoot, right? So, so I think that we'll, we'll continue to see that paradigm shift where really what it means is there, there's like not prep and shoot and post. It's just kind of like, it's all just one thing that happens at the same time. And the shoot, the principal photography is somewhere in the middle of it all. Um, but it really is sort of like, the one process. And, um, and I think that, that different filmmakers will adapt, um, <clears throat> different ways of using it. You'll find, uh, more empowerment of a smaller team to really impact the outcome of the, the, the creative on the film. Um, and with the amount of content that's being produced these days, um, you know, you, you, you have to do more with fewer people, right? You have to do more with less and virtual production is, is absolutely going to take us there. And I think it will, you know, it's like, this is why like, I, I sometimes get eye rolls from people when I say, you know, like for, for decades, um, the, the fun thing about visual effects was like, Oh, I've never seen a digital human before. Oh, look, you like, you know, digital domain did a digital human for Benjamin Button. Isn't that amazing? Nobody's done like digital water before. Oh, look what ILM did for Poseidon or, you know, whatever it is, right? There's always been like a thing that we'd never seen before. And now we've kind of seen everything, right? We've sort of seen a version of everything, um, which for a couple of years was depressing to me. Now it actually makes me realize that it's like, it was never really about technically achieving that thing that had never been seen before. It's about how that thing allowed us to tell a story. And the story is actually the thing to get excited about. And so in, in a way, virtual production and the process, right? The, the impact it makes on the filmmaking process is actually going to allow filmmakers to tell stories that would have otherwise been untellable, right? Because they're, they're going to be able to articulate their vision and, and really influence their vision in a way that would have been too expensive, too slow, um, too hard to explain, whatever the thing is um, before. So, so in a way, like process is the sexiest thing because it is the thing that allows 
the filmmaker to be a filmmaker um, and to use this tech to tell stories. And so that's kind of where I see virtual production going is, is lower and lower friction um, to being the thing that allows the director to like directly express their vision onto the screen um, and, and also involve their trusted collaborators in doing that same thing. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it'll be, it'll be a fun, fun journey to see for the next, for the next few years, certainly. So thank you again for listening to this episode of Future of Film podcast, which is part of the Virtual Production Revolution series, which is presented in partnership with Epic Games and Unreal Engine. For more Virtual Production Revolution episodes and exclusive materials, head on over to the home of Future of Film, futureoffilm.live. So thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you back on the podcast very soon. Thank you.